I have a quest question about the um, the metaphor of the pains of childbirth that the world is groaning with. Mm. What is the metaphor referring to? Like, what is what is what is the pain of that? Like, usually childbirth means like something is coming from that. Like, yes. The metaphor is that just as labor pains let you know that something is about to happen, right? Um, my wife was in labor pains with Abner for 20 hours. Um, in the same way, and there's pains, but the pains also, the metaphor works at a couple of words. It's a predictive. So something is coming. Something wonderful is coming. The other aspect is that labor pains themselves are painful, and even as they're painful, they point to and anticipate something joyous. So the Psalms can talk about after the woman has given birth, she forgets her sorrow for the blessing of the child in front of her. So Paul likens the current distress of the world with disease and with um, the brokenness in nature and all of that likens it to birth pangs. There's something painful, but even that anticipates the redemption that's going to come. And his point is that when the Lord returns, not only will our physical bodies be redeemed, but the earth itself will be restored. Um, the, uh, the, I think it's uh, Zechariah. This land will be made like the Garden of Eden. There will be a restoration of the creation. Um, Isaiah talks about a state of affairs where the the lion lays down with the lamb, where the little child plays in the, the hole of the snake without any fear, the animals devouring each other, animals with poison, all of that will be made right, and the created order will again be restored to its, its glory, and that the current sufferings and pain and ugliness in nature are like birth pangs anticipating that. That's, that's I think, the point of the metaphor. Um, Oh, Elsa. So um, I have a question related to your answer. The restoration then, is that during the millennial? Yes. Okay. Yes. As we piece, what we're doing is you're piecing that together with other things. Um, one of the things that makes the study of eschatology challenging is there are not many, if any, passages that lay every piece of it out sequentially. So it's clear from passages like Psalm 98 and other passages, there's going to be a renewal, a fixing of the created order. Um, and then Revelation, the book of Revelation is where we get millennium, a thousand years. Um, and so one of, one, of the, one of the statements in our statement of faith of this church is we are a pre-millennial church as different people come at eschatology in different ways. Because thousand years is a biblical phrase and term, everybody's got to deal with it. So the, the millennial issue becomes the, the axis around which significant views of eschatology, so you've got ah-millennialism, post-millennialism, and pre-millennialism. Um, and so one of the things that, that uh, I find challenging with some of the other views, like amillennialism, is there isn't going to be a renewal of this world, at least not as I understand it coming. And so one of the things that I see in the Old Testament especially clearly is this confidence that there, a king's going to come and set everything right. A king's going to come, the, the earth is going to rejoice and be made right. 
Um, and so I, I definitely have problems with any view of eschatology that was going to minimize or downplay that. And again, I get back to the goodness of the created world. Um, within the church, there is a, there's a real tendency to downplay the physical order. So what you get is people thinking that, and I'll read this in commentaries, especially when I was going through Zechariah, because um, Zechariah anticipates the millennium. We can look at it in chapter 14. And there's this notion that you get and you read from commentators and Christians that by focusing on events of earth, by focusing on an earthly kingdom that's somehow less spiritual, that's, that's like a, a backward step theologically to be concerned about such things. That, that in fact, in amillennialism, the whole notion is the millennium is spiritual or in it right now. The church is, is bearing the fruit of the gospel, is, is the picture of the, 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 the flourishing plants and such is being fulfilled um, the language of Colossians 1, the gospel is bearing fruit in all the world. And they say, see, see, all of that new creation language is really about the church going forth as the kingdom of God spiritually goes forth as the gospel bears fruit. Yay. But that's, there's truth in that, right? I mean, the, the language of Colossians 1 does use that imagery. But to then say, and therefore any concern about actual physical geography is somehow unspiritual, lesser, a backward step is is buying into this notion that the physical is fundamentally inherently inferior. And this was an error in the, in the Apostle Paul's day, and it's an error now. Um, and it's actually a lot, of, a lot of where I'm going to be going, talking about uh, some of those issues, trans, is the same issue. Um, because, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll test out the thing. Basically... What our world today has done, and this, is, this makes no sense. This is Nancy Piercy, that book that Daniel was giving to the graduates. This is her insight that I find very helpful. What our culture has done is taken the notion of identity and personhood, um, which is an absolutely abstract, and as they define it, I can't escape it, physical, spiritual category. Um, it, it's self-identity perception. There's no empirical test that can tell you self-identity perception. It's entirely existential. It's entirely experiential. It's entirely subjective. It can change. The only way I can know your identity self-perception is by you telling me, right? And, and that then gets elevated to control level, and everything else needs to fall in line. So the argument for abortion is, and, and, and amongst ethicists and bioethicists and biologists, there's no debate. That's a human baby. It's alive. There's no debate. Maybe at the street level, people try to say it's a clump of cells. But, but amongst unbelieving pro-abortion advocates who are informed, they, oh, absolutely, it's a life. It's a human life. It's just not a person. It's just not a person. It's not self-aware and cognitive. So without personhood, because again, personhood becomes the riding value, you can kill it. That's also the argument at the end of life for the aged and the, um, the, the people who aren't mentally there. I mean, this is just dressed up the, I mean, and this is just dressing up the logic of the Nazis who had, I, I'm going to bungle the phrase, anyone know the, Marina, the German, life undeserving of life, Lieben unst. It, the Nazis had a phrase, life not deserving of life. Thank you, Zach. Thank you. Um, We're going to get the microphone for Zach to say that. Um, 
Labens on Verton's Labens. There you go. That was their slogan for, for why you could kill you know, some of the lesser races. Well, yes, they're alive in a sense, but they're not life worthy of life. Um, the disabled, life not worthy of life. Um, of course, even in slavery, we had on um, the Jim Crow era, well, this is, you're half a person, you get half of, I mean, these are not new thoughts. They're dressed up in new clothes, but it, it's, it's for, anyway, Jake, you wanted to say something there. Leave a mic. Uh, back to the amillennialist. They believe that we're currently in a sort of millennial kingdom presently. Yes. yes. What do they do with the tribulation language in Revelation? That probably, I think, um, they would say that that is uh, primarily speaking about the events leading up to 70 AD and the early Roman, uh, yeah. the early Roman persecutions. So Nero um, and yeah. the, the yeah. Roman and, yeah. I'm not Roman a super period. scholar on millennialism, so I don't want to misspeak, but I believe most of them, well, they're going to make a big, big, big deal of 70 AD right. and the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and they're going to basically, I think, say that the persecutions, the early Roman persecutions are that type of tribulation. Or they may say it's the, it's the, uh, the historic throughout this whole period attack on the church, spiritually speaking. Um, they're going to they're gonna make a big deal out of all of the passages that speak of spiritual reality. And we don't want to deny spiritual reality, um, but they're going to pretty much exclusively do that. Um, so, yeah, I, I find it dissatisfying. Um, because there is no then real future history of the earth with any certainty. Jesus will come back at some point, and, uh, you know. The, um, oh, seven, seven, the amillennial position generally puts the, um, the tribulation language and applies that to the ongoing, oh, um, it's, it's the ongoing okay. sort of struggle of the church, okay. whereas the post-millennial position would be looking at the tribulation language and applying it directly to the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, Post-millennialism relies very heavily on the argument that Revelation was written before the fall of Jerusalem. So that's where, that's that's a big part of it. Um, yeah, if, if it, that kind of post-millennial kind of stands or falls based on when Revelation was written. Dan. I was just curious your thought process when you were putting joy to the world with what we talked about in Psalm 98. And after doing that, and look, it's like, well, this is more revelation than the birth. We were just like studying. It's like, oh, I think this Christmas hymn would work perfectly. Or what was your thought process? The, with? the thought process was it's the most well-known we, hey, we all know a song based on this song. Why don't we sing it? And that was, that was the, the thought process was more, more involved than, first of all, with the psalm, what's, there's no other application in the psalm than come worship, come worship, come worship. There's no go do anything. It's just come worship. So we got we to gotta sing at the end. There's no way we can study come worship for 40 minutes and not close by worshiping. And then, okay, what song? Well, we know one that's built right off this. We know one that everyone knows. I have no idea how Joy to the World became a Christmas carol because it's so clearly focusing on the second coming. I mean, I have no idea how. Um, it's a mystery to me. And uh, it's just like I don't know how the Messiah gets associated with Christmas so heavily. 
Um, it's got Christmas, it's got Advent themes in it, but those are the only parts we sing. We just strip the Christmas bits out. And, I mean, for those of you who don't know, there's a whole other bit of the Messiah about the second coming, right? Um, and uh, that's the Hallelujah Chorus is based off of that portion, right? Um, so no there's, no, there's no bigger conspiracy than that. It was just, you know what? We're going to sing the song that we all know that's based off of Psalm 98. I don't know. Maybe you're planning ahead. You were already at Christmas, and you thought, hey, these two go together. Nope, nope. It was, my, my thought process is pretty simple, um, as usual. Uh, yeah. Okay, other thoughts, questions, complaints? Oh, in the back, George. The second section on kingship? Yes. Uh, firstly, just, or sorry, I'm sorry, is that the, you used verse eight, so that I guess that's it within the third, but uh, that, that theme of kingship, that was, that was pretty neat to see that in, uh, in the Kings. Like I've never, I've never seen that before. Is there, uh, for dating the Psalm, when you're thinking through like, in my head, like the argument was like, oh, okay, if the Psalm is written after that, that's, that works really well. If it's written before, then that changes how it works. Do you, one, if you have any thoughts on that, that'd be great. And if you have other places that reinforce that idea of a coronation, that'd be really, that'd be neat. Yeah, no, that's, um, okay, so dating and authorship. The Greek translation, what we call the Septuagint, uh, ascribes, ascribes Davidic authorship, although I wouldn't hang my hat on that. The Septuagint has weird, does weird stuff with psalm titles. Um, and, yeah, so, so the Hebrew text is pretty monolithic, which is what Daniel is trying to point out, but the Greek translation can be fast and loose, which I think is part of the reason why... Um, Scholars today don't take the psalm titles that seriously. It's because when you look at the Septuagint, it's all over the place. And I say Septuagints because there is, it's not like there was one Greek translation. There were hundreds of Greek translations. So there was no, there was no unity. And so we've got them all. Anyway, when I would probably, if I had to guess, though, think Davidic's probably right because of its close association with Psalm 96. This is interesting. So if you look at Psalm 96, there's no Davidic authorship there. However, this psalm gets lifted almost straight out of Chronicles. In fact, let's go there. Let's take a look at um, 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Psalm 96 does. And in 1 Chronicles 16, you see David's song of thanks. And it's clear that Psalm 96 is some adaptation of that. So probably... In First Chronicles 16, we have David's personals. You get this a number of times. There are a number of psalms that appear twice, once in the text of a narrative and then once in the Psalter with slight variation. And the, the best explanation, I think, is when David decided to adapt this for Israel's um, psalm book, there were slight alterations made from his own private use of the psalm. But in 16, 1 Chronicles 16, you get um, verse 7, then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his holiness. And you go through, and it's, it's straight out of Psalm 96. And then given the, how tight, with, even within the subsection of 93 to 100, 96, 97, and 98 are, 
it's so closely associated that if I had to get, it's, it's, now is it possible that someone came along a couple generations later and they were meditating on Psalm 96 and wrote Psalm 98? Entirely possible. Um, all I can say is 98 is textually linked and associated with 96. 96 Davidic, we get that from Chronicles. Who wrote 98? Don't know. Um, but if I had to guess, I would say Davidic, just because of the association with 96, but I can't, I can't be certain. And so then I can't be certain of its construction, of, of when it was. Um, and it could even be the other way around. It could predate the kings, and then when it came time to celebrate the inauguration of kings, and, and so your question about backing up the coronation, um, that's the one I said, okay, my notes make it sound really certain. I think that's what's going on. I, I wouldn't die on that hill. What it is, is a, the movement of a, a warrior king triumphing in the first section with a global witness, and then the global witness is invited to come and rejoice in him as king. Um, it certainly fits the notion of a coronation. Certainly it's okay, all you peoples now celebrate, which is what happens at coronations. Whether or not I could argue that's exclusively the only place that happens, no. Um, it certainly fits, it certainly pictures, I think, to some degree a coronation simply because these people who have been watching on the sidelines now come rejoice. Now come, maybe coronation turns into a celebration of receiving someone as king. You know, a conquering king enters through the gates and the people rejoice. Um, it's less of a coronation of that, but it's some sort of celebration of kingship, and I think there's something about it that's inceptive, that's the beginning of, of people celebrating him as king. Um, but the, the, the link to coronation, um, Barak pointed it out, it's there, but it's not, it's not absolutely emphatic. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't insist upon that point, even though my notes make it sound. See, part of the problem with the notes is I've got to get things to fit on the lines. And my original draft had suggests a coronation, which is probably about the level of strength that I'd be more comfortable with it at than what it's written was just in a coronation. Um, I think the suggestions sound, and I think it works, but I, I wouldn't want to overmake the point. Good question. Yeah. Well, what you've got is this mass celebration of all these nations who've now, who've, in the first stanza, they're quiet, now come rejoice in him as king. So I think there is something about the beginning of receiving him as king. And you could tie that to a coronation. You could simply tie that to a conquering king entering a town and the subjects just, yay, you know, especially if they like him. Um, that's, that's what happened when, um, what's his name? Um, Cyrus overthrew the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the Babylonians? Babylonians. The people celebrated. They so disliked Nebuchadnezzar's son that when, when this conquering king came in, they were like, yay! I mean, they just welcomed him. Um, and so that could be the picture as well, I suppose. But no, good question. And easily the, the least uh, certain point. So good of you to zero in on that. Thank you. Anybody Anybody else? Any other thoughts? Oh, Steve. Yeah, I have trouble. I have trouble with your notes, too. Okay. Um, I got a question on the blanks. Yes, sir. So, number one, victorious blank. Savior. <clears throat> the poetic version would be king. Invitation to become lord. And then 
through extension Savior. Uh, same thing down in 3A1. Um, the material the, the world was made for God. The material glory. world was made. The streams and mountains praise God. Looking forward to his righteous correction of the corruption. And then finally, for God's glory. So would it be fair to have like three blanks, different tiers, and then we could then we could fill them in with King, Lord, Savior, and praise, righteousness, glory, instead of instead of just one correct answer. That that would be just fine, Steve. That'd be just fine. Steve is re reshaping the notes. I like it. Okay. That's, yeah. Um, no, no, and there's one sense. No, and there's one sense in which um, framing a psalm, outlining it, is subjective. I mean, e- even this morning, I suggested there are two ways you could track the movement. You could track the movement of the development of the Lord. First, as this conquering, victorious Savior. Second, as this received King, and then finally, he now enters into judgment. You could also easily outline this psalm by the audience who's singing from Israel to the peoples to all creation. Both of those, you could frame it that way. You could come at it that way. So um, I think it's important. That's not to say that every framing is equally valid, but there's at least two ways you could frame and outline the psalm and come at it that would be textually warranted and valid. So I don't want to pretend that my outline is the only legitimate way to come at this song. It, it's not. Oh dear, he's going to say more. I, I, like your out, I like your outline. I just okay. want more blanks. He wants more blanks. See, I get complaints when there's too many blanks. I get Greg Sweet coming up to me and you know, this whole sheet was just blanks. I'm like, sorry, Greg. So, <laughs> I got it. Okay. Okay. Other, anything else? Anything else? Okay. Okay, then I want to go to 1 Corinthians 6. You guys get to be my test audience on um, test discussion group on the where we're sort of where we're going to be going in that series. Mm. So the Bible doesn't call it this, but the, as best as we can tell, the, the notion of pitting the spiritual world against the material world um, finds its origin in the teachings of Plato. It may well predate him. Other people may have done it. There's nothing new under the sun, but it is commonly referred to as Platonic dualism. It doesn't matter. We can see that dualism approach in Scripture. First John rebuts it. Uh, Jesus rebuts it. Um, Corinthians rebuts it. I mean, it's present. But in case you're familiar with the categories, so in Plato's framing of things, the physical world, the, the, the phenomenal world, the material world, is like a shadow on the wall as compared to the spiritual world. So the realness of my shadow compared to me is, to Plato, the realness of the material world to the world of thought, the world of spirit, the, the, the noumenal world. Um, which is why the earliest Christian heresy was the denial of the humanity of Christ. 
Because for people who bought into this, that the material, so under this logic, the material world is inherently, by definition, flawed, broken, imprecise, corrupted, um, inferior to the world of thought. So Plato's approach, you want to minimize your animal passions, you want to minimize your earthly desires, and more and more experience fulfillment in the world of thought, thinking, and mind. That's how you, that's how you would progress. Um, and so the thought of God actually taking on, God could look human, he could feel human, he could, he could appear convincingly human, but if you're actually going to say that God became human, well, that's, that's a step too far. That's, the, uh, that's the, the difficulty they had. And that wrong thinking of the physical world, interestingly, evidences itself in two errors of sexual sin in totally different directions. And they're both dealt with in 1 Corinthians 6 and then 7. Um, so to, to tie this back into the modern cultural issues, on the one hand, the culture has elevated this notion of self and identity and identity perception to absolute supreme control. And on the other side, it denigrates the physical world so that your body is something that can get in the way, which is why we'll, we'll surgically remove things, alter things, add things. We will give you hormones. We'll, your body is plastic. It's unimportant. It can be frustrating because it gets in the way and it doesn't line up with who I think I am. And so there's this tremendous um, disrespect, dishonoring shown to the body viewed as this vessel that frustratingly isn't what I want it to be, as opposed to, this is me. I'm, I'm my spirit and I'm me. Um, death will separate my body from my soul for a time, but they will be rejoined. And so under this error of, of viewing the physical world and the physical body as unimportant, people were arguing two things. One, we can sleep with prostitutes. Two, married people stop sleeping together. Both errors come out. You can fall off the table two ways. There's two ditches, one on either side of the, of the, the fence, either side of the road. It's not a ditch on either side of the fence. Sorry. Let's look at them. They go right into each other. I mean, you see a chapter division at chapter 7, 1, but in 1 Corinthians, they go straight from one to the other. So in, in 6, I'm in Acts 6. Hold on. That's what happens when you just keep talking and don't actually look at your Bible. Um, 1 Corinthians 6. Paul interacts with them. And, and Paul, even as he's going to dismantle them, is very gracious. He could simply rebut this teaching by saying, no, it's forbidden. But he actually enters into and gives us some insight into their thinking in how he um, corrects it. So in 6 9, uh, no, not 6 9, 6 12. And, and the ESV, I think, rightly puts it in quotations. Paul is citing their slogan. He'll cite it again a little later in 1 Corinthians. So as, as we're trying to reverse engineer what was their argument, what was their perspective, by taking what Paul says, I think we can reverse engineer and, and figure out where they're coming from with some accuracy. So their slogan is this. First off, all things are lawful for me. Um, all things are lawful for me. And there's some truth to that. You know, um, Jesus declared all foods clean, you know, um, but all things are lawful for me. Then Paul responds, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, Paul responds, but I will not be dominated by anything. 
Then their next slogan, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And so they're seeing, if, if the ESV is right in assigning, there are no quotation marks in Greek. Uh, so the ESVs interpret, the translators are, the best as they're reading, reading Paul citing them. Um, they're saying, we see a correspondence between physical appetite and the stomach and food. Your body hungers for, your body yearns for food, and you give it food. And we largely view that as an inconsequential matter. You know, yes, there are sins of gluttony, yes. But by and large, being hungry and satiating that hunger with food, we don't view as a terribly important matter, right? You, you with me? It's, it's, especially if you're buying into the physical world's bad, there's hardly anything less spiritual than eating or excreting what you eat, right? I mean, the, these are all the, the parts that you could imagine. If you think the world of thought and the world of the mind... And having to stop studying and reading to go eat or excrete what you ate has got to be frustrating, right? So that's, that's the beginning of their argument. So stomach, food for the stomach, stomach for food. And then Paul says, and God will destroy both one or the other. Even though we will eat in the kingdom, even though it's, it's, there's a, a wedding feast of the lamb, we will, whatever eating we do will not be because of a growing sense of hunger and we eat lest we grow faint and eventually die. But you and I eat precisely for that reason. We eat because if we don't eat long enough, we'll grow faint, we'll grow weak, and then we will die. That arrangement of body, of stomach, and food will be done away with. We will, whatever eating takes place in eternity or in the kingdom will not be along that basis. Right. So, so Paul freely acknowledges... The stomach for food, food for stomach relationship is a this epoch only relationship, right? Fair enough. He's with them so far. Their mistake is they then use the same logic to apply to sex because my body has this other appetite. My body has this other hunger. And therefore, they would argue it's equally inconsequential, equally unimportant, and equally trivial how I satiate my body's other appetite. And that's where Paul drops a flag. Sports, Greg, see that? Yeah. Paul drops a flag and he says, no, 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 no. One, this thing's not like the other. But that's the rationale. So I want you to see the rationale. You've got to start by thinking that material world's really unimportant. Then you've got to view, hey, there's this relationship between food and hunger, and it's not a big deal. It doesn't really matter. It's really not very spiritual. What do you do? And I've got this other appetite, and how I satiate that's equally unimportant. And one day we'll be beyond this physical world, and I'll no longer be hungering, and I'll no longer be going to the bathroom, and I'll no longer be visiting prostitutes. But until then, what do you do? I live in this fallen body. I live in this fallen world, and you just got to do what you got to do. It's, you know, that's something like, as best as we can figure out, what they're arguing. Um, so Paul then goes into it, uh, and he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. And he says, you've misunderstood it. Yes, the stomach, the organ of digestion, is built directly in correspondence to food. The stomach exists to digest food and to then take that nutrition and that, that energy and spread it throughout your body. That's what it's there for. Your body's not created for sex. Again, our culture needs to hear this because we think what you want to do sexually is who you are. That's your identity. We've, again, elevated this to the level of control. And so sexuality's identity today and on the world we live in, 
No, your body, that's not your body's primary function. That's not, it's significant. We're not trying to say it's not important, but it's too greatly elevated. The body's not for sex. Body's for the Lord. The Lord's for the body. The body is, is for God's glory. And God is for your body. God's a fan of your body. And that's going to be the shock for someone who's bought into platonic dualism. What do you mean the Lord's for the body? That's why you go, you know, God created the world. It was good. It was very good. And don't forget, God physically raised Jesus from the dead. Which, again, is God's implicit thumbs up to the material world. That's why, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he has to deal with people saying there is no physical resurrection, precisely because there are people that want to say, oh, that's kind of just dirtying things up. Can't we just move on to a purely spiritual world after this? So he says... The body is not for sexual morality, but for the Lord, the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, will also raise us up by his power. Your body is destined for resurrection. You're never getting beyond your body, not ultimately. You may for a time be separated from your body, but, but you will be reunited. You're ultimately, you and your body, your soul and your body are going to be joined for eternity. You're never moving beyond physical existence. You may temporarily sidestep it for a bit, but you never ultimately are going to get past it. Um, And so then he goes on to say, do you not know that our bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make the members of the prostitute? Never. And so only after he's established the importance of the body, God's for the body, your bodies can be raised. On that basis then, do you realize that what you do with your bodies matters? And now understand that when you're sleeping with a prostitute, you are symbolically uniting Christ with that prostitute. Do you realize how blasphemous that is? But he has to first establish God made the body not for sex, but for himself. And he is for the body, and he's going to raise your body. And only then on that basis can Paul show how awful and how blasphemous it is that they um, would sleep with prostitutes. Then go to chapter 7 where you've got the opposite. This is actually where the, the patristics got from. Um, the early church fathers, guys like Origen and Augustine, um, they really wrestled with this. And in the early church fathers, there's a lot of writing against sex. Um, this is where the Roman Catholic priestly celibacy virtue comes in. Um, and, and in 7, Paul's absolutely going to insist that the gift of singleness is a superior gift. He's also going to insist not everybody has it. So here's the problem. Chapter 7, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So that's what they wrote. They got, again, a new slogan. It is good for a man not to have sex with a woman. And Paul says, yeah, as far as it goes, that's true. Um, but because of temptation of sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And the having there would be meaning sexually. They should be having each other. Um, so you've got people who are married saying, well, it's more spiritual to be chaste, therefore we're going to be chaste in marriage. So you've got... Out of the same type of wrong thinking with the body, you got one people saying it's unimportant. The other side saying it's dirty, it's animalistic, it's just, I, I just can't we just be spiritual and just commune in our minds? And, and, and Paul's got to knock that one down too. Um, and he goes forward on that. So both errors are present and they yield into both errors. One's asceticism, this notion that any physical thing is bad, 
Any physical pleasure is bad, and it's inferior to mental and esoteric and abstract pleasures and delights and thoughts. The other says, we live in a fallen world, and our body's fallen, so just let the body do what it's going to do. I mean, it's disgusting, fair enough, but what do you do? Praise God, we'll move beyond all this one day. And, and using the same, ration, the same false belief sets up both errors. Um, and, and I think to some degree that's exactly what's going on today. As we have, in many places, elevated sexual desire to identity, and we've elevated this... I mean, this is the thing I don't get. We're supposed to keep faith out of the public square. Uh, we've got a naturalistic, materialist worldview... How on earth naturalistic materialists elevate self-identity perception, which if ever there is a spiritual category, that's got to be one, to control, I don't even understand, but they do. And then everything else in the world has to conform to that. So, so looking at the wrong belief system, at least those I think are some of what's going on. We're dealing with a world that thinks what you desire sexually is who you are and who you perceive yourself to be trumps everything, absolutely everything. Um, reality will and must conform to who you view yourself to be. That, that's, that's one of the issues we're dealing with. And we've got to be aware of that so we can correct it, so we can speak truth to it in a loving way. Anyway, we are at time. That's some of the thinking in that series that's going to be coming up. People ask me, when is it going to come up? When it's ready. Um, <laughs> Well, no, on a, topic, on a topic like that, you do not want to go off unprepared. And so I want to fully think it through. I want the elders, we've talked about it. Daniel and I are talking about it. And, and when, when uh, we feel uh, copious and, and competent, then we'll slide it on the schedule. But anyway, thank you very much. Have a good day. God bless.